Father in heaven, we just thank you for your greatness. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Father, that you are with us no matter where we may be, no matter what we may be facing, Lord. And I pray especially for my brothers and sisters, my, my family that are in this room today that carry heavy hearts or are burdened, Lord, uh, and with difficult situations. I thank you that you are the God of all comfort. And that you are the God who is, as Steve prayed, who really is Lord. And being Lord, you have control. You have your hands. Well, we don't always understand. There are some things that are so difficult, so hard to understand, that we must rest ourselves and, Lord, surrender ourselves to your sovereignty and your love. And, uh, and I know there are hearts in this room today that have done that, to discover, Lord, your mercy and your your strength, your comfort, Lord, and I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Bless us, Lord. Strengthen us, Lord. Lift us up to be able to testify of your goodness and your faithfulness, to say to this world that truly God is good, the God who keeps us, the God who never abandons us, the God who has a destiny for all of his children. We thank you for it in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Amen. So, um, how are you? <laughs> let's, um, let's open our Bibles. Let's go to the book of Romans. Uh, we, uh, if, you're, if you're new with us, or, um, we have communion at the conclusion of our service. Oh, by the way, today is Soup Sunday. Yes. Most of you know, so... Um, um, be prepared to feed the body after <laughs> fed the spirit, all right? It's always some good. It amazes me. It amazes me the variety of soups that end up on, out on that table out there. It's always, uh, it's, sometimes it's a mystery, you know, but uh, it's, a, it's a good thing, right? And thanks for that, and certainly thank you to those that provide the soup. Um, Welcome home, Gabby, wherever you are. Right there. Right? It's from uh, sunny New York. Yeah, yeah. that's wonderful. And uh, anybody else got back to town? It's been out of town. Oh, Steve, that guy. Yeah. That guy. Yeah. Um, Mariah, well, Mariah's been with us. Where are you? You're there, aren't you? You're there. You were here last week. Hey, Mariah. Kira? I don't embarrass people, but wherever you are, welcome. Um, let's uh, um, let's continue. Are you in Romans? Are you in chapter two? Are you happy to be out of chapter one? <laughs> um, well, it's good to keep moving forward. Um, So we're continuing in this book, um, 
that declares how a person... See, in essence, if, if, you wanna, if someone says to you, what's the book of Romans about? You would say to them, at its, at its most basic principle, the book of Romans is God's book to tell us how to get right with Him, how to be right with God. And it begins, and this is what we've seen in chapter 1, that's why I asked you, are you happy to be out of chapter 1? Because it begins by exposing the truth, the first few chapters in fact, the, the truth that all mankind in fact is not right. In fact that mankind is wrong with God and mankind needs to be made right with God. Now the answer you and I know, we've been singing about it, haven't we, already? Now the answer is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel message of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. You know, that, that's where the answer is. But humanity, and, and this is, this is what, the, 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 this is what uh, Romans presents to us, humanity is in a wrong relationship with God. Why? Because of willful sin, because of willful unrighteousness. And God has given humanity a way to be righteous, again, by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. So these opening chapters are exposing, they're giving evidence. That's what, that's what the Apostle Paul does. These opening chapters are giving evidence of just how wrong mankind is in the sight of a holy, and this is what you need to understand, in the sight of a holy, righteous God. The first chapter highlights the the um, unrighteousness of man's choices and it highlights the absolute rebellion um, of humanity's willful rejection of God himself and in a sense replaces God with himself, man with himself with his own passions, his own desires and, and, and we've been looking at that over, over the past few weeks you know and so the absolute, so we've been seeing this absolute rebellion, and I'll say it again, and willful rejection of just how wrong mankind is in the sight of a holy, righteous God. Think about it. Humanity has rejected the infinite being who created him. Think about that, you know. And Paul listed these things. Look, let's just read these. Flick back to chapter 1. Read with me this list in, in, in verse, from verse 28 to the end of the chapter as, as, as Paul continues on to present this evidence. And, and he says, as even as they did. And so he's talking about mankind, humanity. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, there's this incredible statement, God has given them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And humanity most certainly now is, does not think clearly, do they? Humanity does not think right when it comes to an understanding of the infinite God who created them. In fact, I'll say it again, they have, they have exchanged him. And as Paul said earlier, they worship the creation or the, worship the creation itself or the creature rather than the creator. And, and how, see, I, I, we, I, I, I often try and put myself on the other side of the, of the verse, you know. How does God view his creation, you know, who has willfully replaced him? Parent, have you ever, ever experienced that? 
You know, we all do at degrees, don't we? At different degrees, you know, as we raise these children. You know, it's wonderful being a dad. I can only speak from the perspective of dads, mums. So uh, if I get this wrong from your perspective, please forgive me. But I can remember, I can remember as a father being the one who, in the eyes of his children, knew it all. You know, was absolutely in control. You know, children looking up at you with these eyes of, where else do I go? The only safe place is wrapped around the legs of my father. You know, all of those things that, that I often hold up as examples, you know. And, you know, and sometimes, you know, I love my kids and I know my kids love me, you know, but sometimes you feel that, oh, they don't need you anymore. Sometimes that you feel they might have even replaced you with some other things. Now, again, my kids, you guys are great. <laughs> you know? But I sometimes wonder, where is God's heart? How does God's heart, not where is God's heart, but how does it affect God's heart? To look upon his creation that has not only rejected him, but replaced him, has exchanged him and said, we no longer need him. I often think on that. And so here is this list. As they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to the debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And it's a horrible list, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil, mindedness. mindedness. They are whisperers, they are backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters. Notice this, inventors of evil things. You only have to watch reality TV to understand that, don't you? Disobedient to parents. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgments of God, that those who practice such things, and please, again, hear this, those who practice such things, he says, are deserving of death, not only do the same things, but also those who approve of such things and practice them, or approve of those who practice them. And so what he's doing here, what this chapter has done, is describing the immoral acts of man, uh, and the scripture declares that unrighteous man is guilty before a holy righteous God. And it's saying here, is deserving of death. That's what mankind is deserving of. And so in light of the gravity of man's position, I'm asking a question this morning. In light of the gravity of man's position, here's my question. Does God mean what he says? Is that a good question? Does God mean what he says? And does God say what he means? Question number one. Well, that's my only question today, I should say. Now, I know you gathered here this morning. I know that you would answer in the affirmative. You would say, yes, of course God means what he says. Because, you know, after all, no one can have confidence in a capricious, impulsive, unpredictable God, right? That's a scary thing when you think like that, you know. Most certainly God means what he says. But here is the thing, and now when I say this, here is the thing, now I'm talking about the average citizen that's living out there in this world. Certainly nobody wants an arbitrary God, nobody does. But here's the thing, so many people will not accept God's immovable position concerning human sin. In fact, you can't even talk about it, can you? 
I'll say it again. So many people will not accept God's immovable position concerning human sin. And even more, they will not accept the absolute necessity of his divine righteousness, justice, which means judgment. They will not accept that. You know, God always has been. God always will be holy, just and righteous because that's who he is. That's who God is. He will. No, no, no. It's not he will. He must act against the things that defile his character. And so he judges sin. He judges unrighteousness. God judges evil. He does. He does, you know. And the simple truth is God does not change, God has not changed, and He will not change. Certainly, He will forever be the wonderful God of grace and mercy, right? We love that. that that's who He is. That's who he, who he is. But He's also forever a just, pure, and holy God who cannot support, nor will He ever approve of sin and declare that it is acceptable in any way. Yes, Calvary, the cross of Jesus Christ, is God's provision for the individual who will accept his forgiveness. Certainly, Jesus Christ is the propitiation, the Bible tells us, for mankind. And what that word propitiation means is that at the cross, Jesus Christ met the just requirements of a holy God. He met those requirements. You know why? Because God was angry. See, people don't like that, do they? They don't like to hear that. God is angry at sin. He's angry at sin. Why? Because sin not only defiles his nature, but it damages the thing that he loves more than anything else. What's that? It's you. It's it's you. It's you. Yes, Calvary is a propitiation. Yes, it is a provision for the individual who will accept what the Lord has done and will submit their lives to it. But that does not for a moment mean that God ceases to be angry at sin. It doesn't, you know. His wrath. His wrath, the first chapter talked about that, you know, will always burn against sin. Do you understand that, you know? Is that a reality in your awareness of who God is and how it affects your life in this world, you know? And, and, and that is simply because he is always, and I've said it, I know, but he is always utterly holy, absolutely righteous. Again, most will agree with the fact that we all sin, right? Because after all, no one's perfect. Any perfect people in this room? No, there isn't. After all, no, no one's perfect, but at the same time, It's almost impossible, I've said it, I know, but it's almost impossible to get people to realise the gravity of their position, the gravity of the position that sin places them in. Again, most people have no problem with those that are guilty of the big sins being judged, right? We don't have a problem with that. You know, after all, God, he's got to judge judge the, the murderers, he's got to judge the rapists, right? 
And everybody will agree with that. You know, what does the judge say in the movies? You know, when the earthly judge hands down his earthly judgment against the, against the evil person, what does he say? He says these words, and may God have mercy upon your soul. I don't know if that's real, but that's what the movies do, right? May God have mercy upon your soul. You know what it's doing? It's acknowledging what most people out there agree, that there is an ultimate judge for all the really bad people. There's an ultimate judge for all those that are doing the really, really bad things that people must face. But, when it, but, but what they cannot accept is that the life that is given over to envy and hatred and all the other so-called lesser sins is equally condemned, condemned by an eternal, righteous, holy God. They cannot accept that. And the consequence is that people begin to take God's word about sin and his judgment and they fail to view it seriously. You know what it is? They don't actually believe he says what he means. They don't actually believe it, you know. In fact, and that reason, with that reason, they replace his thoughts, because that's what the word of God is giving us, the very thought of God towards mankind, but with that reasoning, mankind takes his thoughts and they replace it just as they have replaced him. They replace it with their own reasoning. And suddenly now we have these cliches, nobody is perfect, becoming everybody's justification to abandon themselves to a life of compromise when it comes to choices about godliness. Because after all, nobody's perfect. Right? And becomes, becomes a part of who people can be. You know, little things like after all, everybody's doing it, right? It's just how life is these days. It's just where the world has become. It's just how things are changing, you know? Nobody's perfect. And so the reality is that so many people have given themselves over to this sort of thinking. You know? That's ah, really not that bad. It's really not that bad, you know. As long as I don't, as long as I don't do the bad things, as long as I don't commit the really big, big bad things. But at the end of the day, that person is saying to himself, "God does not mean what He says." That's what that person is saying. See, the problem with such reasoning is that, well, first, first of all. It doesn't understand the righteousness of God. It doesn't understand the holiness of God. And it's reducing God in that person's mind. It's reducing the holiness of God in that person's mind, in that person's thinking, and the way they approach life in this world. And secondly, it doesn't recognise their own sinfulness, the state of it. So here's the thing. In reducing God's holiness, what are you doing? What are we doing? We're bringing God down, aren't we? We're bringing God down to our level and we are no longer viewing him as the infinitely... Hear that word. We're no longer viewing him as the infinitely righteous and holy one. We lose awareness of the fact that God cannot... Please hear this. That that infinitely righteous, holy God cannot have fellowship with unrighteousness. It's not that he will not. He cannot. How many 
many people have said to you, Chris, no, if God really existed, why didn't he just appear? You know, why didn't he just show up on top of a hillside and say, here I am, I love you all, come unto me. Have you heard that, that sort of justification for dismissing the reality of God? He did, certainly, in the person of Christ. But the divine manifestation of God in all his glory. If he appeared, goodbye humanity. It's not that he will not, it's that he cannot. That's the reason that Christ came the first time. He didn't come to carry around lambs across his shoulders and, and you know, hold his children on his lap and be nice to everybody. Yeah, yeah, there's a bit of that there. He came to die for the sins of mankind. God manifest in the flesh. God himself came and died. Hear this. God himself came and died upon a cross to save us from himself. Do you understand that? So you say that, sometimes that just shudders people sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes that shudders Christians. God himself. God manifest in the flesh, came to this earth, walked amongst men, died upon the cross to save us from himself. It's not that he will not, he cannot have fellowship with unrighteous men. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need to be forgiven of our sin. That's why we need the righteousness of God clothing our eternal beings that we can have fellowship and come into relationship with him. We can't any other way. Do you understand that? Do you see why this book is called a book of revival? When you begin to grasp these realities about the nature of God and the gravity of human sin and the human condition, you understand why this book revives people's hearts. Because for the first time they begin to see, they really begin to see the plight of humanity separated from God and the consequences of that and just how awesome God's love is for us. He would do that, you know. So what about us this morning? In light of this, what about us this morning? Do we think there is a little sin in our lives that God is saying, ah, don't worry about it. Do we? Ah, don't worry about it. It's not one of the big ones. You know, you come with a Brooklyn accent all the time. God's got a Brooklyn accent. Ah, it's okay. No, I can't do it. Sorry. Gabby? No. Not even close. Okay. Do you think God simply excuses them? Just little things. If so, we don't understand God. If so, we don't understand God's holiness. Let me say it again. The never-ending, never-changing eternal fact is that God means what he says and says what he means. It's never going to change. Why? Because God, I'll say it again, God is the one infinite, perfectly righteous and holy being. That's who God is. Oh, we haven't even got to the chapter, have we? Sorry. So with that in mind, with that in mind, the second chapter begins. It begins, and the Apostle Paul, what he's doing is addressing Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Okay, we've talked a lot about unrighteousness in past weeks, right? But now, self-righteous. Also termed as the moral, the moral, uh, morally superior person, you know? 
The self-righteous is someone that is convinced at their own righteousness, especially in contrast to the actions of everybody else around them, is superior, you know. We call them, we call them religious moralists, is what we call them. It's those that think they have a past with God because of who they are. They think they have a past with God because of who they are, be it because of maybe some position they hold, maybe because of some birthright they have, or some privilege they hold, or some qualification they've attained, or some talent they might have been endowed with, or people they associate with, or dare I even say some church that they may attend to. They have a measure. They have this measure of righteousness that comes from who they are, from who they are, and they measure it against everybody else. That, my friends, is a religious moralist. That's not what you want to be. That is self-righteousness. In the time of Christ, the uh, religious Jews thought that they were born righteous. They thought they had, because they were born Jews that they had a pass with God. In fact, at the time of Christ, many of the religious Jews believed that Abraham, Father Abraham, stood at the gates of hell and he was there to prevent from any Jew accidentally going into hell. You know that? That was his job. But by the same token, they also believed that all the non-Jewish people were destined for hell. It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter who you were. They're going to hell. So Paul begins this chapter and he says these words. He says, therefore you are inexcusable. Are you read it with me? You are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another person, you condemn yourself for, who, for you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. That's very important. Because God says what he means and God means what he says right we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things and do you think this O oh man you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same thing that you will escape the judgment of God or do you despise the riches of the of his goodness forbearance and long-suffering not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance See, the reasoning here is very, very logical. The self-righteous moralizer who judges others condemns himself when he practices the same thing. Now, I think there's traces of this in all of us. I, I really do. And it's in all of us because I think we don't always understand the nature and the gravity of sin. Example. A person can look at someone who's caught in adultery, having an adulterous affair, and you can and they condemn them. Yet Jesus makes it very clear within our own hearts that same person could have committed the same thing a thousand times, right? You see, it's the very motivation, it's the very intent of a person's heart. You know? A hateful, lustful, prideful, envious, covetous heart is condemned by a holy, righteous God, regardless of how noble 
or outwardly righteous their actions may appear. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount teaches us. That's what Jesus said to the disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds those of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll no wise, in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Now when they saw that, they were flabbergasted when they heard that. Because in their culture, nobody was outwardly, practically more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. They gave themselves to this, per this perfection of being right in the things that they do in the eyes of men. But inwardly, something else was going on. And so the disciples hearing Jesus say, unless your righteousness ex exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, thought, well, hey, no one can get there. No one can get there because these guys are the top of the pinnacle in that sense. They were the righteous religious moralizers. That's who they were. But Jesus, what he is doing, he's closing the book. He's closing the door, I should say, on, on, on self-righteous access to God. It doesn't matter how good outwardly a person is because at the very end of that passage, Jesus is going to say, I want you to go, go and read the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of that passage, Jesus is going to say, be ye therefore perfect even as my Father in heaven is perfect. Because no one can be perfect. So it's not about our outward actions of righteousness, but it's the righteousness that can only be attained through relationship with God, who is perfect. See why we need forgiveness? See, the only way that we can be accepted of a holy, righteous God is to be clothed again, I say, in His righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why the cross is so important. That's why it's essential to our lives. You know? Read the Sermon on the Mount. Understand what the Sermon on the Mount is really all about. It's just, it's just revealing. We can't do it ourselves. We'll never be good enough to do it ourselves. But again, you know, people don't want to accept what God says about their sin. They don't want to accept what God says about righteousness. Mm. So you know what the next thing we do is that we reclassify. We, we, we reclassify our uh, sin for ourselves. You know, we look, at, we look at others who lie and cheat, but, you know, when we're doing it, we're only stretching the truth, right? You know, we, others steal, why would we just borrow things and maybe forget to give them back? Um, you know, others are prejudiced, but you and I, well, we have strong convictions. And so we reclassify our sin. You know? Let's be very careful about what our heart is truly, truly saying and recognise it. Remember this, we cannot do, we can reclassify our behaviours and we can make ourselves look good in the eyes of men, but understand, we can never, ever, 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 ever do a snow job on God. Isn't that right? You know, all things are naked and open before him whom we must give an account. That's what the Bible tells us. You know? God sees the very thoughts and the very intents of our hearts. That's why that second verse, I don't know if you noticed it as we read it, says, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth, I highlighted that, is according to truth against those who practice such things. We've got so many examples in the Bible. Don't be like, don't be like King David. You know, the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. Yeah, we want to be like David. But don't we... But don't be like King David in the sense that there was a time that he was blind to the, own, to the sinfulness of his own heart. Remember the story? Nathan the prophet comes to him and, 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 and tells him this tale about a rich man 
who lived next to a poor man. And the rich man was having important guests coming to him. And so he wanted to give him a great feast. So he goes next door and he takes by force the poor man's only sheep. And he slaughters it to entertain his guests. Have you read that? Do you know what David's response was? It was a righteous response. It was a response of righteous indignation. David, you can, I can see David with the vehemence in, in his voice and, and, and expression in his face. And surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this thing deserves to die. 2 Samuel chapter 12, go and read it. You know. um, that's when Nathan turns to David and looks back at David and with equal intent says to him, David, you're that man. You're the one. He said he was the king. And if you know the story, he had taken another man's wife. He had taken another man's wife. He was guilty, you see, of a similar but far greater sin, yet being enraged at another man, he was blind to his own condition. See, that's the tragic state of self-righteousness. The tragic state of, of, of self-righteous blindness. Now listen, David was smart enough and he was close enough to God to acknowledge his sin and, and, and seek God's forgiveness. He was. But the self-righteous moralizer who condemns others and finding excuses for themselves, the Bible will tell us is deceived. Again, he thinks it's his position, he thinks it's his birthright, he thinks it's his privilege, he thinks it's his qualifications, his talents, he thinks it's these things that whereby God accepts him. You know? No, 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 no. No, what does verse 4 tell us? Verse 4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his patience, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. This person will often mistake the long-suffering of God as God's approval. This paints a fearful picture. They mistake the long-suffering of God as God's approval. Just because God doesn't strike us down the moment we start to step out of line doesn't mean that God is anyway approving of a person's lifestyle, does it? It doesn't mean that God is not in opposition to a person's lifestyle. But those that think the goodness of God, and hear this, those that think the goodness of God is only ever an indication of God's favour are deceived. Can I say that again? Those that think that the goodness of God is only ever an indication of God's favour on their life are deceived. Because what the scripture here tells us, the truth is that God, yes, is incredibly good. But in his goodness, he is merely giving a righteous moralizer the opportunity to do what? Turn around to get saved, to repent, to come to the Lord. We have another word for this guy. You know what it is? I've, I've sort of stepped toed around it. Stepped toed around it? Tip-toed. Stepped around it? Tip-toed. You know? He's a hypocrite. This is the hypocrite. The hypocrite, hypocrite feels because he 
isn't necessarily guilty, at least of the outward uh, of the outward sins that all these other people are clearly doing in before his eyes, and he concludes that God must be pleased with his life because things are going okay. But again, nothing could be further from the truth. This mind has got God wrong. God's goodness, God's forbearance, God's long-suffering is to give an opportunity, I'll say it again, for people to turn to him, to turn from their sin and turn to him. How, how, how appropriate is that for us in the Western world? You know, for, for the best part, most of us are doing okay. And we can sail along living this very compromised God in relationship to godliness. That's all right. And people actually think that God is pleased or God is happy with that lifestyle. No, 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 no. No, no, not at all. How foolish is the person who thinks that he's getting away with ungodliness? How foolish is that person? What, what God is actually saying is, yes, there's, yes, there's opportunity to repent. And what God is actually saying here is, and people need to understand, you and I need to understand this, is that, no, you're not getting away with anything, but in reality what's going on is you're running out of time. Is that you're running out of space. Look, I'm going to have to pick this up at this point next week, but verse 5 tells us, but in accordance, notice, just jump ahead to that verse 5. We'll come back here next week. But it says in verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your, your impotent, I can't say that word, it just means lack of remorse. <laughs> yeah, I can't say it, Russ. Because of your lack of remorse or remorseful heart, you are treasuring, hear this, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and, and revelation of the righteous judgments of God. Look, there are, I'm going to bring this to an end. There are self-righteous religious people that are spending their whole lives looking down the noses of people, people they see as less than themselves, and they think that their apparent blessing upon their life is God's approval. But what's said is, but in reality what's going on is that they themselves are heaping up. See the imagery that's here? They themselves are heaping up all around them the righteous judgments of God that is going to come crashing down upon them. And so if you are living in willful disobedience to God, you are and, and, and you, and, you know, because you think it's okay, because you're getting by. Things are sailing along smoothly. What the Bible says is piling up around you. Some people liken it unto a dam. Please see this. A great dam of God's wrath that is filling up and filling up and filling up. And the day is going to come. Isn't this? No one comes to church to hear this, do they? But it is filling up and it's filling up and the day is going to come when those walls are going to come crumbling down and that wrath will come crashing down upon them. But how wonderful and merciful and gracious is God that he's given us that time. He's given us that time. The self-righteous moralizer. 
person that sees God sees God's goodness as a stamp of approval. That person is completely deceived. What does this all mean to you and I? I might have lost you a long time ago, I don't know. But what all this means to you and I is that we've got to check our hearts. We've got to check our hearts, every one of us. You know what the psalmist said? The psalmist said, for there is not a word, this is Psalm 139, it says in verse 4, it says, there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. There's not a word on my tongue, but you know it, Lord, all together. He knows the real intention behind every spoken word that comes from this mouth, that has proceeded from this heart. Again, he knows absolutely everything about me. Again, all things are naked and open before him whom we must give an account. We can't forget about these scriptures. We can't forget about it and simply say, by God's grace I stand and live. Because God is infinitely merciful. Please, you be careful of that. You be careful of that. God is infinitely merciful because he is an infinite being, but his mercy does have a finite quantity to it. It will come to an end. The age of grace will come to an end. So Christian, hear it. Hear what's being said here. Understand that God indeed is righteous and God indeed is holy. And He will not abide the sin in the lives of His people. We need to admit. We need to repent. We need to turn away from unrighteousness. We need to reject any form of rationalization and justification that I may have in my life saying, oh, well, you know, God's, God's, God's okay. No, 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 He's not. We think we're fooling. We think we think. No, we don't even think that. All I'm going to say is that God won't be fooled. You know? My prayer at the end of this disjointed, all over the place message, right? My prayer is that we, that you, that I, that we would begin to see the absolute holiness and righteousness of God. And let me finish with this word, that we as believers would strive to have a profound inward righteousness. Can you hear that much today? That we would strive to have a profound inward righteousness. Why? Because we serve a profoundly righteous God. Amen? Amen. All right, I'll leave you there. I know it's hot and stuffy in this room. Um, well, actually, yeah, great, <clears throat> excuse me, great passage of scripture to gather around the community table. It really, really is. Remember that statement that I said? God manifest in the flesh. The holy God, the righteous God, came to this earth. And gave himself as a sacrifice to save us from himself. Not that he hates you. Not that he condemns. Not that he wants to condemn you. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish. Isn't that right? 
but that is holy nature, his righteous nature. So, so when you see, when you look at the, when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, you know, we now see the necessity, don't we, of the fact that he was perfect. He was indeed God manifest in the flesh. He was the righteous, holy one, who never in any way, never in any way compromised the absolute perfection that is God, that is his nature. That's the very nature of Jesus himself. So now we think about that and we come to the cross of Jesus and we understand why he was lifted up there for us, taking our place. And that the very wrath of God that Romans chapter 1 talks about was poured out upon him. That he becoming the just was given for the unjust. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? Can you stop as the Elements come to you. The cup that represents his blood. The bread that represents his body. And realize they represent perfection. They represent absolute holiness. That's who Jesus was. That's why the Apostle Paul, you know, boldly, boldly, boldly declared that it's Christ's life now, isn't it? It's the life he wants to live. I don't want to live that life. Who I was. No, it's Christ in me. It's Christ in me. Christ in me. Christ in me. I think you might have got up every single day and said, yeah, it's Christ in me. Isn't that a good thing to say? It's Christ in me. Well, who is Christ in me? Who is Christ in me? It's the perfect, holy God. That's who he is. It's no longer I that live. It's Christ that lives right in me. What does that say? We sometimes quote that verse as if it is some sort of uh, some some sort of um, 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 what do they call it? Um, 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 it's not um. Believe me, it's not um. It's it's you know some sort of magic charm. Thank you. That'll do it. You know. But it's nothing like that. It's, it's the holiness of God is at work within me. The absolute righteousness. I know I've said it a thousand times. That's what, that's what those emblems that you are now holding represent. It's been given for you. Given for you. That you might be saved. You might be accepted. But you might be able to come into the very throne room of grace at time of any time of need. Isn't that amazing? You know, when we think about you know the, the imagery that's given to us in the Old Testament, you know, and we see through the sacrificial system that only once a year, on one day, can one individual, after much ceremonial ceremonial cleansing, go into the holy of holies, which is the place where the, the very presence of God dwelt, and that was that was the only access that any mankind. Any man could ever have for all of mankind. And then Jesus comes along. The perfect holy son of God. The righteous son of God comes along and gives his life as a ransom for you and I. And the Bible tells us that the veil was rent from top to bottom. That separated the holy of holies. That place that no man could go into. Representing the very presence of God was rent from top to bottom. God had made a way. 
for you and I to come in. Come in. Isn't that good? God says, come in. Think about it. Come, come, come in to my presence. You can now. Stop and think about it even more. You can come in now and you won't be consumed by my righteousness or my holiness. You're welcome. What a fearful thing. What a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God if you don't know God's forgiveness. What a fearful thing that is. And what a gloriously liberating thing it is to be a child of God, accepted in the beloved, washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. Power has been given to be a son and a daughter of God. What is that power? What is it? It's the power of the gospel. The finished work of Jesus Christ. It's a glorious thing. I hope this ministers to your heart today. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. We praise you, Lord. Lord, I pray that we are humbled today in acknowledgement of what it is that you have done, what it is that you have made possible for us to even know you. Spirit of God, speak to our hearts. Spirit of God, work in us. If we're in this place, Lord, and we don't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray, Father in heaven, that you would just wound that heart and draw that heart to surrender to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Father, we thank you for this cup. We thank you, Lord, for this representation of your precious blood that washes us. Thank you that you died for us. Let's take the cup together. We thank you, Lord, for this bread. Thank you, Father, that it represents the perfect, holy life that was lifted up for us sacrificed in our place, the very bread of life that has become life within us. Oh Lord, help us to live this life, I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us Let's take the bread together. Let's just one last time, this morning I should say, not one last time, but let's together as the holy, as the family of God. You know, God looks at you as holy, you know that? Washed clean, whiter than snow. All of those imageries are given to us in the Bible. Sons and daughters of God, righteous ones. What a glorious thing it is. You know, and, and what's happening right here, right now, is just, it's just a, a preview, if you will, 
of the family of God standing in the presence of God. The Bible talks about this incredible scene in the opening chapters of Revelation where it talks about thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, multiples of thousands, millions of millions gathered around the throne of God singing the song of the redeemed. Because He is worthy. Because He is worthy. And He has saved us. What a glorious thing. Do we worship Him?